The GIST is sponsored by The Great Courses, engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Art of Storytelling, from parents to professionals. Get 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash GIST. And by Acura, the presenting sponsor of the 2015 Sundance Film Festival. Check out the all-new Acura TLX at Acura.com or test drive one for yourself at your local Acura dealer. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, January 22nd, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So gay marriage is really having its moment. No, I am not speaking of the impending case before the Supreme Court. Most observers, by the way, when someone says that, it means I think this, but, you know, so does the guy next to me and the guy in the carol next to me. Fine. Most observers feel the court will rule for gay marriage, disallowing state bans against gay marriage. But it's not a fait accompli. What is a fait accompli? Oh, I know this. Uh, It's the French term for an accomplished fact. What is a fait accompli? That is the Jeopardy way of answering that question. Because what I am talking about here today is Jeopardy. Gay marriage and Jeopardy. Jeopardy pro-gay marriage. I know this, and I think it's significant, and this is why gay marriage is having its moment. I know this because I was watching Jeopardy last night. And remember, who watches Jeopardy? Not just Eastern or Western coastal liberals. Midwesterners, moms, Christians. I'm going to guess Barbara Bush. But there, in the last question of double Jeopardy, they flat out mock the half measure between a ban on gay marriage and accepting gay marriage. Here is Alex Trebek reading the clue, $800. The category is civil. Take it, Alex. Some opponents of same-sex marriage say, hey, gay folks, how about these? Wouldn't these be good enough? Daniel, what are civil unions? You are right. Now, on Twitter, straight Twitter, I guess, maybe not, some people didn't get the stance that was being taken, and they objected to the phrase gay folks, but they didn't know that Alex, he was in character. He was embodying the opponents of gay marriage, saying, hey, you gay folks. He had gone deep. I mean, they had to take a break after that clue, I assume, so Alex could decompress to, you know, assume the role of dispassionate inquisitor or given the structure of Jeopardy, in answerer. Anyway, gay marriage, you have arrived. Jeopardy is now mocking civil unions. On the show today, the people demand it, so I will spiel about it, deflated footballs. But first, an act of terrorism in New York City more than 25 years prior to the attacks of 9-11-2001. It is a tale that today is close to being forgotten, yet the setting and the circumstance couldn't be more imbued with history. The Gist is brought to you by Acura, the presenting sponsor of the 2015 Sundance Film Festival. Acura understands the power of performance, how every moment should be infused with emotion and every movement should evoke a thrill. A great performance is what Acura wants drivers to experience every time they get behind the wheel, which is why Acura is proud official presenting sponsor of the Sundance Film Festival. Check out the all-new Acura TLX at Acura.com or test drive one for yourself at your local Acura dealer.
Before the Revolutionary War, the tavern founded by Samuel Francis in Lower Manhattan was a meeting place for the Sons of Liberty. The Patriots spearheaded New York's version of the Boston Tea Party there. During the Revolutionary War, the tavern actually took a British cannonball through the roof. After the Revolutionary War, George Washington bid farewell to his officers in the tavern. New York was the country's first capital. The Department of War and Finance were housed there. The tavern continued on for years, became known as the Francis Tavern. It was the Queen's Head for a while. Now it's still the Francis Tavern. Its last true brush with history was really a brush with infamy, and it came 40 years ago, a tragic brush. January 24th, 1975, Puerto Rican nationalists set off a bomb in the Francis Tavern annex, injuring 50, killing four people. One of those killed was a banker named Frank Connor. Frank Connor's son, Joe Connor, is here today. He still works trying to get justice for his dad and have people remember what happened in the Francis Tavern. Hello, Joe. Thanks for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. So you were nine. Your dad was only 33. He was at a business lunch. Were you shielded from details or were you told pretty early on a lot about what happened that day? I think we were shielded from detail. Uh, That day I remember specifically because I had turned nine on January 20th. And my brother had turned 11 on January 13th, and we were going to be celebrating our birthdays that night. It was a Friday night. So literally that night when it happened, we had come home from school. We went out to play as we always did. My mom called us in and said, you know, something had been terribly wrong, and uh, your father was missing. There had been an explosion downtown. So we waited, and finally people came from his job and told us what had happened. And it was crushing. I mean, it's crushing for a 9-year-old to be... told that his his hero is just taken like that. But the details of it, we didn't really look at the details of it. We really focused on growing up yeah. and going to school. My mom set the, the tone that night when my grandmother, my father's mother, who my father was an only child, when she came over and my, I asked her, mom, is grandma still our grandmother? And my mother said, of course she is, Joe. And it was really kind of set the tone for us. And we stuck together very tightly and We've done well. How involved or how how notified were you of the criminal investigation? Maybe not you. You were nine. But you've, I'm sure you learned years later. Did mm-hmm. they keep your mom abreast of what was going on? Did they tell her much of anything? Not really. Uh, it was a different time. You know, after 9-11, where my father's godson was killed on 9-11, and I was in the Trade Center that morning, and we saw how the country rallied around. It was a very different time back then. We weren't approached by anybody, the government, Red Cross, nothing, no political people. And the investigations continued without our knowledge. We would read things in the paper and periodically, you know, friends of my father who might be really more in tune with it would would tell us. But generally speaking, until William Morales uh, blew himself up on what would have been my dad's 37th birthday in 1978, uh, that's really when we got started finding more information. And then when the rest of them were arrested in 1981, uh, we got a bit, but uh, not a lot. It was known pretty early on because they took responsibility that these uh, so-called Puerto Rican nationalists, terrorists, the FALN, were responsible. But which specific ones did the police not know? Could they not charge them? What happened with trying to you know, bring the specific killers to justice? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, William Morales was the known bomb maker, so he likely built the bomb that killed my father. Who actually planted the bomb? We don't know. Now, the FALN was arrested in Chicago. They had, they had weapons. They were ready to do a kidnapping. It was They had blown up 130 bombs in the U.S. They were sentenced to 55 to 70, some of them up to 90 years in prison. 
At trial, they threatened the judge, and the judge said he would have given them the death penalty if he could. So they were essentially put away for life. Mm-hmm. And in the economics of the early 1980s, and even today, you're not going to bring people back to New York to face really the same charges and the same, same times in prison. So the economics law enforcement, my friend Rick Hahn, he's an FBI agent, retired, who headed this investigation, talks about that. They were all convicted of being part of the conspiracy. And any member of a conspiracy was responsible for the actions of that conspiracy. I mean, bin Laden didn't fly any of the planes. Charles Manson didn't kill anybody. But just being part of that means that you are responsible for it. And when Clinton offered their clemency in 1999, he didn't require them to give up information about the specifics. And he clearly should have done that. And Morales escaped. Morales escaped. Morales blew off nine of his fingers, half his face. He was uh, allowed to go to Bellevue Hospital after being tried and convicted and sentenced to 89 years in prison. He was allowed to go to Bellevue Hospital to get a prosthetic devices. And somehow, a guy with one finger shimmied down a rope made of linens and was saved by the white radicals from the time, the, uh, the Weather Underground, and that, that whole group was all conspired. They got him out. He ends up in Mexico, where he and another guy are in a shootout with Mexican police. They kill a Mexican cop. They get arrested. They go to prison in Mexico. Then in 1988, the Mexicans against the Reagan administration was trying to get him extradited to, New- to the U.S. to finish his 89-year sentence. He gets sent to Cuba, and he's been a guest of Castro ever since. Yeah, and, you know, looking back, I mean, there was a romance about him, There, uh, yeah. misguided. There was this idea of radical chic. I mean, what he does if it was a movie is a great story, except for the fact that, you know, there's your father in the ground, and that's not so compelling or thrilling. Yeah, he killed innocent people. They were they were all part of the, the ring that did it. And, you know, you talk about, there was a movie called Legal Eagles with Robert Redford, mm-hmm. and there's a picture of Morales on the, on the wall in the courthouse that's in that movie. So there was some sort of weird chic about these people. You know, they talked about freedom for Puerto Rico, for the Puerto Rican people, when only 3% of Puerto Rican people ever even wanted to be independent from the U.S. In the last vote, 60% voted for statehood. So they weren't interested in freeing the Puerto Rican people. They were interested in subjugating them. They were Marxist. They wanted to institute another Cuba within Puerto Rico. So it wasn't about freedom. It was about subjugation. It was about totalitarianism. And that's what these guys were all about. And putting aside that, the tactics. I mean, that's, I think, the biggest thing that would change, that you could have any debate. But I think in this day and age, once anyone resorts to that, they lose the argument. But back then, not just what the uh, this group was doing, but, you know, the Weather Underground or the IRA in Ireland. Right. I don't know. Absolutely. Terrorism, it was smaller scale. Your father died. But it was smaller scale. And it was seen as just one of these outgrowths of the times. The 70s were filled with incidents like this and skyjackings and sure. radicalism running everywhere. Well, yeah. you see it. I mean, look at Bill Ayers has become somewhat of a celebrity. Uh, you know, there's stories that he and the president were friends. It's it's very difficult to, to grasp how people could latch on to terrorists. And we're even seeing it now. Um, Oscar Lopez Rivera, he is, was one of the FALN leaders. When Clinton offered clemency in 1999, Lopez turned it down. Yeah. Uh, it took he and he turned down his parole hearings over this time. So finally, in 2011, he accepted a parole hearing, and I flew out to Terre Haute, Indiana, to the federal prison with my brother and some folks who were at Francis with my dad, and we actually kept him in. And now there's a there's a push to have him given another clemency. 
but there's only half truths. You hear the M- M- Melissa Mark Viverito and others talking about uh, getting him out. Yeah, but she's not, the speaker of the New spe- York City Council, right? Right. But they never mentioned that he turned down clemency. They never mentioned that he tried to escape. He tried to. He conspired to bring a helicopter into Leavenworth Prison. It's like something Lex Luthor would do yeah. in Superman. This is the kind of people that we're dealing with, and they were very dedicated. As a matter of fact, when Clinton offered them the clemency, they didn't ask for it. It took them 30 days to decide to accept it. They left prison on September 10th, 1999, almost two years exactly before 9-11. And they were, they never, they never apologized for what they did. Do you feel in any way connected to a larger community, either years later, the 9-11 community or other family members who died at Francis Tavern that day? Yeah, we've gotten to know uh, Deanie Berger. Uh, Her husband was with my father when he was killed. She and her current husband went out to Terre Haute with us. Uh, she and I introduced a bill into Congress about uh, clemency, the Pardon Attorney uh, Integrity Act. So we've gotten to know her. We've gotten to know some FBI agents. As far as the 9-11 families, we are one. Yeah. I mean, my cousin was killed, uh, and I do. I'm part of that group, too. And, you know, what we're seeing now with 9-11 is, we, is these uh, prisoners being released. Uh, Eric Holder was the deputy attorney general in, in 1999 with the Clintons who pushed their release. And it was really an effort to gain some traction for Hillary Clinton's run for 2000 Senate. Right. The, the, so to be clear, the prisoners who were released were these Puerto Rican nationalists yes. were given clemency and Holder as the attorney general had to prepare documents where he noted that he thought that their sentences were disproportionate. And I think maybe from what they were convicted of, but not from some of the things that they weren't convicted of, like the bombing of the Francis Tavern. Yeah, I mean, and that's debatable, too. Uh, at the time, the the House did a, uh, a study on that, and that was kind of disproven, that, that mm-hmm. disproportionate thing. Uh, and, and so I ended up testifying at Eric Holder's Senate confirmation hearing. And, you know, after 9-11, and we talked about how releasing terrorists would only encourage more terrorism, and we didn't expect that our family would be affected twice. But it was it was an important point that, you know, we, we as a country have always sworn that we wouldn't negotiate with terrorists. We wouldn't associate with terrorists. And we seem to have lost our way. So m- my goal is to is several things. One is to make sure that my father's not forgotten that, that and, and not used for politics, which he has been. Uh, another is to get William Morales returned from Cuba now that we're normalizing relations with Cuba. And the other is to is to let people understand that you know, terrorism could happen to anybody. It's happened to our family twice. And I think people need to kind of understand that that, that is, it's there. We need to fight it. We can't allow our country to give in to these type things and become, you know, and invite more upon us. I think that's where we're headed. How was your father used for political purposes? Well, Hillary Clinton was running for Senate. She was planning to run for Senate in 1999. And the really reason. And, and the Clintons claimed executive privilege, so they never disclosed. But it's pretty obvious that there was a deal cut that they would release the FALN terrorists in exchange for votes from the Hispanic community in New York. And it sounds ridiculous mm-hmm. uh, because nobody in the Hispanic community supports terrorists. I know that. But the portrayal of the terrorists in 1999 was that they were nonviolent. True, they weren't convicted of the Francis bombing, but they were convicted of 29 bombings in Chicago that maimed people. So they were violent. It was all the perception, the portrayal, and there was, it was a deal cut. It was a deal cut. And I said at the time that it was really hard to 
to think that my father's life was worth less to his president than some political agenda, and I still believe that. What does the Francis Tavern do now? They commemorate it with a plaque. Is there anything else? I mean, it must be weird. They're an ongoing business. Yeah. They embrace history. Yes. But this is this terrible tragedy that happened on its site. Yeah, they do have a plaque there, and I've been talking to them. I was think, you know, the the anniversary is January twenty fourth, so it's very soon, and I wanted to have. I thought about having a ceremony there or something, and. Then I kind of realized that I'd rather have something where my father lived rather than where he died. Yeah. Um, and the Francis people have been terrific. And, you, you know, you, I wrote a book called The New Founders. And mm-hmm. in, the, in the book, George Washington comes back to life. And as you pointed out, George Washington bid farewell to his officers at Francis Tavern. And in the book, we have a scene there. Uh, and I describe, it's a fiction book, obviously, but I describe my father's death there. And we bring George Washington back to talk about it and, 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 what the, and what Francis Tavern means to this country and what it meant to him. I mean, Samuel Francis was a freed slave. He was a, he was a black man, and he was a great friend of, of George Washington. So there's so much in Francis Tavern that it, of historical significance, and, and that's why it was chosen by the FALN to attack. Now, if I had to tell you my opinion about all this, I would say that, well, you did say before we don't negotiate with terrorists. We've actually negotiated with terrorists a lot. It's not great. But I think the important thing is to, to remember history and to keep it alive because... When we talk about these guys, these 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 guys who've killed people, if it's just an abstraction and if we don't conjure a victim, it becomes a different decision than if when you say, just like with the 9-11 terrorists, I mean, there were 3,000 victims, so right. people are touched by them. But if there are only a few victims and you're not out there, then they become you know, someone who made a mistake or someone with political leanings or someone who did something other than kill people. And so I think that's really important. And, you know, we probably disagree politically, but (laughs) I very much uh, appreciate what you do and your commitment to history and your dad. You know, and I really, and it's nice to talk to someone who doesn't agree with me, maybe politically, because I think at the end of the day, we're all Americans. We all want what's best for our country and we're all people. Thank you, Joe Connor, who... It has a website called We Win American and is the co-author of a book called The New Founders, which brings the founding fathers alive in America today. Thanks so much. Thank you. So on The Gist, pretty soon, listen for our discussion about storytelling. We will be joined by a master storyteller. But now I'm going to tell you about a special sponsor offer from The Great Courses, and it's exactly about storytelling. There is a course that The Great Courses offers called The Art of Storytelling from Parents to Professionals. We think it's a great fit, or it could be a great fit for you, the listener. It's Hannah Harvey, an award-winning professor and storyteller. She looks at the power of narrative, and she talks about how to create narratives that other people will be compelled by. So if this is the sort of thing, I mean, if you are that kind of learner, yes, Maria and I debunk this at all, but if you do like to listen to things or watch things, The Great Courses has you covered because they have a DVD, they have a CD, you can stream it, you can get any one of their 500 topics, including, like I'm talking about, the art of storytelling. So, to get this, go to thegreatcourses.com slash gist. That's thegreatcourses.com slash gist. That'll get you up to 80% off their original price. And for a limited time, for just listeners, you can order eight best-selling courses, including The Art of Storytelling. Like I said, for 80% off the original price, thegreatcourses.com slash gist.
And now the spiel. Here's to saggy balls. So Deflategate, Balgazi, whatever you want to call it, the PS-Iran-Contra affair, air, air is in the end there. No, don't call it that. But what the sports media, what fans are calling it, is the gravest injustice to the game we love. It's being treated like a felony. In fact, it's a misdemeanor. It's not even a misdemeanor. In my opinion, it's like when a truck driver doesn't properly inflate his tires. That could lead to points. You get enough points, they could find this truck driver. That's like a civil action, right? Much less than a felony. But to listen to people who cover the NFL say it. Here's Mike Freeman, the NFL national lead writer of the Bleacher Report. Bleacher Report, kind of a bullshit site, but Mike Friedman's not. They've hired a bunch of good writers. He's one. And yet his take, cheating scandals will forever tarnish the Brady-Belichick legacy. Here's the great thing about legacies. What's a legacy? Is it, is it a set of accomplishments? No, that's not your legacy. Your legacy is what other people think about your accomplishments. So since Mike Freeman or anyone else is another person, you're always right when you say it tarnishes their legacy. Because you say, I don't like them. I'm part of other people. Therefore, you got to tarnish legacy. Or in the Boston Globe, Dan Shaughnessy wrote an article saying, win or lose, patriots have sacrificed their legacy. Give me a break. This is a team that is on the verge of winning four Super Bowls together. They've been in like half the Super Bowls in the last 14 years. They are an extremely accomplished team. And the fact that their balls, their footballs, might have been underinflated by one PSI during the AFC Championship game, which they won by 38 points, is meaningless. And yet, in the scope of things today, it is seen as horribly, horribly grave. And look, if it's proven that the Patriots did deflate their balls, they should be punished to the full extent of the rules, which is $25,000. That is the fine that should be levied against ball deflators. $25,000, by the way, comes out to one five hundredth. So you have to multiply it by five to get to 1% of Tom Brady's salary, his 2014 compensation. It's so laughably low, it tells you how seriously the NFL takes ball deflation. It's not that big a deal. I mean, the NFL just fined Seattle running back Marshawn Lynch for, um, let's say, adjusting his equipment after a touchdown. He touched his balls. But why should? Here's my question. Here's my contribution to this great debate. It's to ask this question. Why should the NFL prohibit the practice at all? Why should inflating a football to the specification of the thrower of a football be against the rules? The NFL has passed every rule you can think of to allow passing to flourish. And it has flourished. And the league's now worth $10 billion in revenue a year because all this passing is allowed. You can't hit a quarterback. You can't hit a receiver. Guys run free in the defensive backfield. All these passing records are being set all the time. It's exactly what the league wanted. And even more to the point, less abstractly, big-time quarterbacks like Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, they petitioned, essentially petitioned the NFL to change the rules to allow them to use what footballs they want. And the league thought this was such a reasonable request. The coach who was in charge of the rules committee at the time, Jeff Fisher, said, you know, we thought that changing the rule would be a comforting factor to the quarterback to be able to use their own balls. It just made sense to the committee. So this is what the quarterbacks do. Now, they can't deflate a ball a little tiny bit, but here's what Eli Manning does to get his balls ready. And he he doesn't even do it. No, Eli Manning has some other attendants working on his balls. 
So the equipment managers of the Giants find the ball that maybe could be an Eli Manning ball, and they rub it vigorously for 45 minutes with a dark brush. It removes the wax. It darkens the leather. Then they get a wet towel, and they scour the ball until the ball's outer surface is soaked. And then, once it's waterlogged, they brush it again. And then they take it to an electric spin wheel where it undergoes another high-speed scrubbing. And they do this three times. And not all the balls are even good enough to be Eli Manning balls. So you're telling me you can't deflate a ball even a slight amount if what you're doing legally is treating a ball like a prisoner at a black ops site run by the CIA? If a quarterback likes his football pounded with a mallet and waterboarded until it's a faded husk of leathery oblongness, that's fine. What's the big deal about a slightly underinflated ball? Why are we going so crazy about it? Yeah, it's against the rules. My entire question, need it be against the rules? It's the most important piece of equipment. Have the quarterback, the most important player, have a relationship with his equipment that is a positive one. All right, let's talk about baseball for a second. People are comparing what's going on here to a doctored baseball. A baseball could be scuffed or globbed on with an outside substance, and then the baseball achieves weird motion and it deceives an opposing batter. But football's not like that. It's not about deceiving the defense. A football's not like a baseball bat, which can be corked to affect the flight of the ball. A football's not even like a soccer ball or a basketball because both teams play with a football or a soccer ball at the same time. So one team can overinflate or underinflate a basketball if they think that would give them an advantage to have a slightly depressed soccer ball that doesn't go as far or a slightly overinflated soccer ball that's extra bouncy. A football's not like that. A football's actually like a baseball glove. And baseball gloves can be broken in, they can be worn down, they can be turned into things that almost exist, like the former baseball player Walt Weiss. He used the same glove for 12 years out of his 14-year career, and his teammates started calling it the creature. And if you put your hand inside the creature, your hand would stink for like a week. So this is the relationship between a baseball player and his most important piece of equipment. It's a very personal relationship. It's to his specification. Why can't that be the case with football? I'll tell you why. Because in baseball, that Walt Weiss has a glove called the creature thing. That's a charming anecdote. It's in line with the quirks of a whimsical game. But in football, a slightly underinflated ball is portrayed as evidence of perfidy to be stamped out of a highly regimented endeavor. Either way, I, I tend to think that despite the press conferences that the coach and quarterback of the New England Patriots gave today, where they were grilled like Chris Christie defending himself over Bridgegate, I don't really think that that will be a distraction. I don't think that they will focus on that. I think over the next 10 days, they're going to focus on the Wilson that is on the back of the Seattle Seahawks quarterback's jersey and not the Wilson that is stamped across the dimpled side of a football. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi is deflated by the fact that NBC has canceled the TV show Bad Judge. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, is super inflated, like 2.5 PSI inflated, that he gets to mark his territory through urinating, defecating, and by scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, goes to a nightly spin class on a high-speed spin wheel, and that class is filled with Wilson footballs. You can go to iTunes, and if you do give us a review, subscribe to the show there. You go to slate.com slash just email and sign up for our email. We'll tell you when the show is ready. You can play the show right off the email. That's how I listened to it yesterday. You can download the app Yo and then subscribe to podcast. The show will be sent to you that way every day. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. 
I will also post my essay, the written version of that spiel, which ran in Slate today. The gist shall, quote, remain under the supervision of the referee until it is delivered to the podcast attendant just prior to the start of the game. If this episode does not conform to specifications or if your podcast feed is exhausted, the rule book says you, quote, shall secure a proper gist from the visiting podcast and failing that, use the best podcast available. I'm Hannah Rosen. This week on the Double X Gab Fest, we're going to talk about the Silver Spring parents who were reported to the police for letting their kids walk home alone. To find out more, listen to Thursday's Double X Gab Fest. Look for us in the Slate store or on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.